0: Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for joining us here at Apollo Center. My name is Arthur Asadurian. If it's your first time here, thank you for joining us. And as you can tell, I have a guest with me, Alex Thompson. And again, I wanna remind you guys to share this out uh, live right now, uh, see if anybody is awake, at least in some parts of the world, and uh, wants to join us for uh, what I would assume to be a very lively and awesome discussion. And if you haven't subscribed, go ahead and subscribe. Give a little like because YouTube likes those things and makes us more visible. So any one of those things really helps. Well, Alex, thanks a lot for, for joining us. We'll just jump into it. And uh, thanks for agreeing to to have this. Uh, just before I read a little biography about Alex, I want to say that I met Alex um, last October, right? Uh, in Georgia. Yeah, was it beginning
1: uh, of November, I think.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, in Georgia, not the state, the country, uh, that uh, country in the Caucasus, right uh, north of where I am right now in, in Armenia, and um, it was cool, kind of hit it off, and uh, he presented a really awesome paper that uh, that has gotten my attention, and kind of, as I was thinking about who to have on, I thought Alex has a unique set of skills that would be very helpful in um, for Christians and uh, for us to know what's going on, especially for apologetic purposes, because uh, these things are in in like within that conversation, right? So let me read this. Uh, I, Alex's biography is really cool, uh, and it's got a number of different components to it that are interesting. So Alex Thompson is a Bible translation consultant with the Russian Bible Society, uh, that's based in the USA, and the Trinitarian Bible Society in the UK uh and uh, now this is this is a difficult one alex uh I, I can't read this one and pronounce it so why don't you do that <laughs>
1: which means the reformed bible society which is the dutch equivalent of the tbs that was formed okay. in imitation of the tbs
0: awesome because there's no way i would be able to pronounce that uh and you also teach uh biblical languages at a dutch reformed denomination seminary and presents uh, um, biblical linguistics and trans- translational issues more widely as an oca- occasional lecturer in the former Soviet Union, in, in this part of the world. Uh, I'm assuming uh, you're living in the Netherlands, and uh, he's a guest speaker at Dutch churches and events, um, engaging in aspects of church history and non-Christian religions, uh, so world re- religions. He's also a freelance simultaneous interpreter, which is a very, very difficult job, uh, there's translation, and then there's simultaneous translation, <laughs> uh, and we'll uh, I'll question him about that, and and see how he goes through switching uh, between languages in his in his head. Um, and you work with diplomatic bodies and academic uh, translations, and then he also has a degree. Uh, he has an MA from Cambridge in Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic. Are those languages that you have a degree in? Uh,
1: they are. It's a fairly unique course because you can either go the whole linguistic route and study all the early languages of the British Isles and Scandinavia or you can go the historic route. I went much more towards the linguistic end. Uh-huh. But you can study the language and or literature and or history of all wow. the peoples of Northwest Europe, basically.
0: Awesome. And you were an Brit- uh, uh, intelligence officer in, in Britain for eight years before you move to the Netherlands in 2009. Now, we're we'll, we going to definitely talk about that one. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like. And um, and then he, I think this is probably a bit closer to my heart in regards to interests, uh, regarding comparative con- constitutional law, legal philosophy, um, and, and politics within the Western world, uh, we would say. And he has recently left uh, Facebook and... Uh, has jumped onto Parler, which is something I've recently jumped onto as well. Uh, so if you wanna if you wanna catch Alex and interact with him, make sure you follow him on Parler. Uh, Eastern Approaches at Eastern Approaches, and then that would be uh, that will be in the description box, so people can just click and that'll take them there. Uh, and I think we're all disgusted, Alex, at the um, the censorship that's uh, happening on social media and uh, so this cancel culture stuff. So I am with, their, uh, with you on, uh, there. Let me start off with this. How many languages do you actually know?
1: Well, to know in the sense of being able to translate a text out of on paper would be perhaps three dozen, somewhere around there. But of course, many of these are closely related languages. I ought to say that uh, many of the languages of Europe in particular fall into language families that are pretty close, Germanic and mm-hmm. Romance and so on. Uh, but I've studied some classical languages as well. Um, but it would not be commercially viable because of the speed and the practice you need to offer all of those for translation. So as a freelance translator, I normally concentrate on about four or five languages that I translate out of. Which are which, are, which are what? Those, those would be... Nowadays, in order of um, uh, how often I translate out of them, Dutch, German, French, Russian, uh, did quite a bit of Italian in the past as well. Um, But in terms of speaking fluently, it's pretty much that list. Uh, Italian isn't so fluent, but Georgian is fairly fluent, but there isn't that much commercial need for it except in some niche areas. Mm -hmm. And the Celtic languages, which, as I said, we um, studied at Cambridge in an older form, so I never got really fluent in the modern forms of the Celtic languages, that would be Gaelic and Welsh. But Gaelic itself has got two forms, Irish and Scottish and Manx. Um, So that's the kind of milieu, really. It's, It's languages for different purposes. You know, once you've studied quite a few languages, especially the classical ones, you understand how language works. And then you can study a new language pretty quickly and work out uh, how to gut it, how to get what you need out of it, whether it's grammar or idiom, in order to be confident at least of what you're saying when you're looking at a text.
0: Hmm. Uh, you had an interest also in learning uh, grapar, ancient Armenian. How's your Armenian?
1: Uh, not love <laughs> at the moment, not very good. Uh, I love listening to Armenian music, and it's one of my priorities for the next year. Hmm. Is uh, I have Robert Thompson's book on grapar, which I've had for 20 years or so, but never really got round to looking at. But Armenian is, as Lord Baron famously said, a, a, a rich language that would amply reward anyone the trouble of learning it, I think, were his mm. words. And he and the Whiston brothers, you know, who were giants of um, 19th century, 18th century British church history, and so on, they, they managed to study Armenian when there were very few lexicons or dictionaries oh. available, Armenian to English. So they had to use books produced by the Mechitarist fathers, you know, in Venice, uh, it can be done uh, these days. There's a lot more good tools around. But you know, they're, they're in their snapshot. I've given you, you know, the approach that sort of polyglots like me take to learning languages. They know where the resources are, mm-hmm. and if things line up so that they have a need to speak or to translate out of a particular language, they can mug it up within a few months.
0: Well, we need people like you uh, to at least translate old ancient Armenian uh, theological literature into modern. I would say it's needed in modern armenian but at least english
1: and celtic languages uh, as well they produce so much early devotional material that ought to be translated into english these days
0: yeah we're we're like theological students right students of theology and seminaries in the west it would be really beneficial i think um and being someone who's gone through that sort of an education but not really interacted with um non-western church kind of history right i mean you deal with greek fathers and stuff like that but this at least this part whether it's the georgian or armenian um uh fathers where there's not interaction i mean that would be of such benefit i think to the church in the west so uh you 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 and people like you have a special uh, i don't know man it's uh, special gifting I, I, I um without you we would be much poorer Uh, Let's put that. So, I want to just give my appreciation because it takes a lot of work to to do this sort of work. Um, Let's tell me about your uh, your uh, you know military kind of intelligence uh, work. What does that look like?
1: There is actually quite a lot of overlap between people Bible translation and people who end up in Western countries. Well, more generally, end up working for the intelligence part of their government because you know, if you are this interested in languages, it manifests pretty young. I know that my mother had a list of two sheets of notepaper of all the words I was speaking when I was a year old. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it it just went on very quickly. I insisted on uh, my father teaching me Greek from pretty young as well. So if that manifests and you're growing up in a, especially as I had the privilege of being growing up in a conscientious Christian home, your thoughts pretty soon turn and counselling at school as well. They, they try to point you this way. How can you use your languages, your interest in languages? Many countries have got a need for polyglots. Uh, you need a couple more skills as well, like a bit of political acumen nous, as we would sometimes say, and so on, and, and an ability to keep secrets and an ability to keep a cool head on your shoulders. Many countries are on the lookout for such young people. Hmm. Um, in order, well, I mean, you are a classic example, you know, you're you're in a, an open state of war with one of your neighbors, a de facto war with another. The ones at the top and the bottom are a little friendlier to you, but you can't quite trust their machinations. So you need to be able to know what the societies of your neighboring countries are saying. Sure. Now, Britain and America and a couple of other countries in the Five Eyes Alliance with them, Commonwealth countries, They go a step further, like a couple of other big players in the world, like France, Russia, Israel, and they say we want global coverage. So this is inculcated into patriotic and especially Christian young people, because Christians tend to be more patriotic than the the background population. Right. Although, of course, in some parts of evangelicalism, there's this vogue that we we are too we're too big, we're too spiritual to love our country. That's coming up now. But generally, uh, Christians are a, a, a talent pool out of which the intelligence agencies fish. Quite a lot. And so after university and having spent a year in the Caucasus, um, I came back and again, discussing with my parents, what can I do with the languages? It seemed a fairly natural choice. This was just before 9-11 and I was 21 year old at the time. It seemed a natural choice to apply to the British government agency that specializes in translating foreign communications and reporting on them. So I did that. And a very rewarding experience. I have become something of a political dissident since because I don't trust the uh, elite leadership of Britain Mm. or America in any way. And I don't trust what Mm. NATO is and other things that countries like where you are, well, more Georgia than Armenia, regard as their salvation. I don't trust that agenda at all, nor am I naively pro-Russian or whatever. Mm. Um, But... The core of what I would say is you meet lots and lots of committed Christians in the intelligence agencies, particularly in the linguistic bits, less in the in the hard bits, obviously, where, you know, you, you, the intelligence agencies hassle with people. Hmm. Um, you certainly meet a lot of committed Christians who, in the bits of the agencies that uh, consist of people sitting at desks, translating and transcribing audio material uh, from a foreign language into English, reporting on it. Uh, I met people who had just finished doing Bible translations or who were off next to do Bible translations after working for GCHQ or the American equivalent NSA.
0: Uh,
1: So it's an interesting environment, thriving Christian fellowship. And it it appeals to this attitude. In a lot of young people, it's not quite formed yet, this attitude of you want to serve, don't you? Because that's been inculcated into committed Christian young people. You want to serve, you want to use your brains for the kingdom of God, don't you? And I wouldn't say it's entirely cynical, but that's the kind of media and, and right from the vetting interview onwards, cause it takes a year to get into these agencies usually with vetting. Uh, one of the things they'll ask you is how would you reconcile things in your conscience? If mm. you found that we were at war with a country that's actually, you know, you, that you're sympathetic with in Christian terms.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, there's a bunch of whole, a whole sort of ethics stuff that, uh, you know, that's applied in that kind of a context. Um, so we have uh, a number of people watching. Uh, for those who are watching, feel free, please, to um, to write down your questions. Hopefully, we'll have some time to, uh, to jump into some of your questions uh, that Alex can answer. Alex, help us understand what actually um, it takes to come up with a translation. And I should qualify that, a good translation, right? I mean, we can have translations that are very bad and they're, they're poor translations and they probably shouldn't be trusted very much. Um, So what does it take? What is the work of, um, you know, how many people are involved in uh, getting us? For example, you know, my daily reading Bible is the ESV Bible. That's the one I use for my personal reading. My studies, I use the NASB. Um, If I have a lot of trouble, I go to the Armenian and and that helps at at times. Uh, So uh, help us kind of see the amount of work, maybe even to produce a, a translation of the Bible.
1: Well, let's latch on to what you just mentioned there, Arthur, about the ESV, because it represents uh, a late stage in the process. And so we can look back from that. Mm -hmm. The ESV, if we look at the history of who was involved in translating it, it's something like the sixth or seventh generation Bible translation since William Tyndall in the 1530s, who was the first man to translate the Bible, at least the whole New Testament and much of the Old Testament before he was martyred, directly from the source languages Greek, and Hebrew. So William Tyndall back then, 90% of his work, particularly for the New Testament, finds its way word for word into the King James, otherwise known as the Authorised Version, 1611. That remains stable for a long time with great big scholarship being built up. So we're already talking about a couple of geniuses who devote their lives and literally their blood to the translation, plus a huge number of scholars then, you know, looking at it and comparing the translation with the source language and making useful notes for Christians around the edges. And then by the late 19th century, people are saying, well, we need more helps for lay readers because we've made advances in language and archaeology these days. And all of a sudden you get this plethora of translations, revisions, um, and about two or three iterations later through, the, through uh, intermediate stages like the RSV, you end up with the ESV. Okay, so Having said that in miniature, you've already got an idea. Certainly for major languages, English because of the number of speakers it has, or Armenian because of the sheer length of its history as a Christian language, a language of Christian people, you've got thousands of people involved in producing a Bible translation, thousands just devoting their lives, let alone the long tail of people who help a project in some way or other. Hmm. But let's zoom in a bit. If we are pioneering a Bible translation, for a language right there in the Caucasus where you are, there's dozens if not hundreds of languages that are already written because they were made literate during the Soviet era that have never had even part of a Bible translation. Maybe these days a few of them are receiving their first gospel translation. So if we think about that end of the scale, you need, and this, this is not easy to find obviously, you need at the very least one or two people who are very good at Greek and Hebrew And you need a couple of people who are native speakers of this language. These days, it's only fairly small, low-density languages that have no Bible translation, but that's many hundreds of languages in the world. Mm -hmm. And you need to find a way for them to get together physically, which is often dangerous and difficult and interferes with family life and work. And they need to be doing that for a decade at least, if not 30 years in many cases, to produce a full Bible. And so we're talking about half a dozen people. With their families and the donors who support them putting that amount of time in to produce a bible from scratch then inevitably after people have given their sweat and tears for decades they will discover that uh, they didn't quite get the the tone right in some ways and tone is quite a vague term but you know what i mean they didn't quite get the theological vocabulary spot on or whatever So there will always be revisions and we hope improvements, but also uh, people fiddle with the text and make it worse. Basically, it's several people need to devote their lives from the get-go, and then a number of scholars per generation need to keep the translation sound. Sadly, a lot of people mess with translations as well, but even just to keep it going, you need a continual flow of people devoting their lives.
0: It's such a sacrificial endeavor. Um that like the more I look at it, the more like we you know, it's at least at least in the English speaking world, right? Like we pick up our Bibles and everybody's probably got one, two, five in their house, multiple translations. There's such a richness of English translations of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I'm guilty of this of you know complaining about certain translations and saying, Ah, you know, I don't use that, it's not good enough. And but it's it's really is um, a, a great deal of sacrifice on the part of not only the translators but like you mentioned their families whether it's moving places uh you know large portions of their life being devoted to, to this one thing it's just phenomenal and i think uh you know it it would make sense i think as as good christian people to like as as we read our bibles uh you know uh, devotionally and and when we're doing our studies and stuff to to maybe just thank god <laughs> that you know, he has brought up and produced people, and people have actually sacrificed uh, their lives uh, so that we would be able to have um, the Word of God in our hands uh, to to read, study, and and know and and understand who God is. Um, I met someone over the internet. Uh, this is a number of years ago. Who was? I forget whether he was in New Zealand or Australia, but his father had been working on some translations uh, with the indigenous, like Aborigines. And he sent me a copy of this. Now, I, that's in the United States. Um, and it's the, I, it was the Gospels. It was portions. So it wasn't the whole Bible, but it was portions. And, and I opened it up. I mean, I don't know this language. It's Latin letters, right? It's, um, and I'm reading through it. And then it, something stuck out to me. Um, like amongst the very long words that there were, um, I saw the word God. And I said, oh, that's strange. I highly doubt these people have that word in their language for God. And so I kind of shot him a message and I said, hey, I, I noticed this. What's, what's going on here? He said, well, the they, they don't have a word for God. And we had to provide them uh, for a word for God. I mean, th- these are some of the, I mean, I, if you've come across some stuff like this, I, I would like to hear some stories of, hey, there's a language and they don't have a word or they don't even have the concept for this and the difficulty that goes along with if we translate a word for word or something like that maybe it's an issue you know so this kind of dynamic equivalence and you know word for word translations and and what comes out of that and where where maybe a balance
1: is and in the answer i should also address a comment that Jakub korkmaz has put in the comments a very Mm -hmm. sensible one about uh this movement that's now arising for Muslim idiomatic translations, you know? And that there's an equivalent for Messianic Jews, Jews who've come to Christ mm. uh, as well, where, where um, in the New Testament, everything is Yeshua and Elohim instead of, of Jesus and God and so on. Well, I'll address that as well if I can. Um, basically there is, you, ha- you always have to think analytically in language, you know? I mean, I often say that linguists and translators are engineers with words and ideas right they have to be able to conceive the whole system and in order to see such a huge complex system as language and break it down you have to think in terms of parts and layers okay so there's at least three layers going on with bible translation there is the language or the concept of what is language never mind what is a language <laughs> then there is a text right and that's not always written you know jack and jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water is a text because kil- children who can't read yet know what the text is And on top of that, you have question of translation, one text from one language to the same text in another language. So there's three layers already. Okay, so that's pretty complex. But the question you just asked there, Arthur, was about um, how do we know when to furnish a recipient language or a target language with new terms? And uh, many native languages of North America, for example, use the uh, English word God. I think that's probably what you were reading. Um, That has been given to them because there are too many connotations with any of the native words they have for divine beings, heathen mm-hmm. connotations, right? Uh, not with the Armenians, because uh, if I'm not mistaken, Astvads was a word which you already had in the pagan period. Yes. And so you can redeem a word. It is, it's very sensitive. You have to know the people involved and what their collective mind, their spiritual feeling is. If they think that a word is irredeemably pagan, they will jettison it and take on often a Protestant evangelistic word that's come into them from another language. So there are places in the world where they've been evangelized by Lutherans or um, Eastern Orthodox, because the Russian Orthodox did a fantastic amount of good Bible translation in Siberia Mm -hmm. in the 19th century. And they will use the the, the German or the Russian word for God or of, of Bible characters in the midst of their sentences. So these are theological terms. Okay. The other side of the house is that the Bible... Uh, represents a lot of cultural and economic detail as well, of ancient Israel, and then later of the Mediterranean international world of the Hellenistic Roman period. So for those terms, you start to think, well, is it sensible to use an idiomatic equivalent? No, it is not. And I've actually written articles and given talks about this to the Dutch, because they are, they're always a bit behind the Anglo curve, but they're trying to following some of the mistakes that uh, English-speaking evangelicalism has made through the 20th century. One of them is that it's becoming fashionable now to say that these these faraway heathen peoples, they don't know what snow is. So we had better change uh, Psalm 51, where it says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be white as snow. So I turned this round in a recent article to the Dutch Reformed and said, can you really imagine that if you were the unchurched heathen and the Bible translators were coming from Asia and they translated Psalm 51 with um, purge, or uh, clean me with a, with a cleaning rag, and I will glisten like the crests of the North Sea's waves. Would you be happy with that Bible translation? No, you would not. And if you didn't have snow in your uh, country, then all it takes is to add a photograph of a snow-capped mountain to the Bible, right? So we're, we have to be realistic here. We don't translate into a vacuum. The Bible itself, although it's unique as the word of God, and it's unique in that it can show us salvation, presumes that we are familiar with other books and with common sense and the real world. That's often forgotten. It's not God speaking through a megaphone into a vacuum. Yes. Right. So whenever there's unfamiliar cultural, technical, economic terms, because you know the people you're translating for have a different niche in the world and they don't know these terms, these, these ways of doing things, you just work something out from their language and illustrate it until they've got the hang of it. You know,
0: this kind of, um, uh, from, I want to be very kind with the words I want to use here, but a certain sort of atheists, where they make these uh, broad statements, like, what has Christianity given the world? Um, Apart from all the humanitarian and all, all the stuff that is very evident, the fact that Christians have devoted themselves and their lives to go into societies and cultures, and give them new context. I mean, Christianity, I would say, is authentically an educational religion. Like, it values education, because a part of it is knowing who God is, reading the Word of God, and understanding who God is. And so, it, if, if you go into an illiterate society, within a generation or two, if Christians have their way, you're going to have a pretty literate society. Uh, by literate there, I mean people knowing how to read and write, uh, because that's important to the Christian uh, Christian worldview and the Christian religion. And it's it's such a blessing to the world, uh, amongst other things, uh, where, um, I mean, that's a sort of apologetic, in my opinion. I, I have a pretty broad definition of what apologetics is, uh, because it, it, in my view, apologetics cannot be in any way separated from the way we live and the change we bring uh, within the societies uh, that we go into. And, and you kind of look at that and you say, here's an individual... Like William Carey, as as far as I know, and the stuff I've read about him, like right, like devoted his life to translating the Bible into uh, I don't know how many, but at least one Indian. uh, You would know this, right? Indian languages. And as far as I remember, one of you know his library burned down at one point. Like he, all his work was lost, and he did it again. Like, it's like what kind of again going back to sacrifice and the care to have, but it really elevates the value of the people you're working with even just translating the bible and saying you guys don't have a concept of this we're actually going to educate you in having a concept of snow or a certain kind of animal uh that doesn't exist in your region but you know it exists in the biblical uh, world and saying here's a richer view of the the world at large that god has created it's just phenomenal uh, so. let's, let's
1: jump into that and uh, answer Jakub's question a bit more yes, because yes. It, it, it tackles some of this and I'll try to do it Apologetically as this is an apologetics channel. Okay, so the key issue to me is confidence Confidence of the evangelist that he is bringing knowledge that will be useful to salvation as 2nd Timothy 3 16 and 17 says you know, to furnish the man of God for every good work and for salvation above all the Muslims and the Jews have this confidence with their incomplete and, uh, and misunderstood uh, version of, of monotheism and of salvation. Okay, so they have no compunct they have no um, uh, qualms uh, about using uh, Arabic or Hebrew words in English for sermons and even for evangelism. To the extent that Jews and Muslims do that, right? So, um, if you speak, if you listen to Muslims speaking in English, they will pepper their sentences with all the theological terms still being in arabic they will say allah had a nabi and mm-hmm. because of this nabi we have a deen and because of the deen we have come out of jahiliya and we have ilm right <laughs> they they will even speak to 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 white um target audiences yes. this way right why because they have confidence a wrong headed confidence yeah but you know The same with Jews. Of course, famously, Jews do not seek converts. Very few do, but they will talk about, um, uh, you know, Hashem has has given us an emunah. These are just words for faith, belief, religion. All of these key words stay in the translation. Now, what Yaqub is pointing to is that uh, a movement has arisen that has so little confidence in the scriptures Mm -hmm. as a base of knowledge. Epistemology if you want the posh word that they will speak to Muslims and as, as Yakub mentioned, you know This is often uh, people who stay in the mosques I, I will not judge people who stay in mosques for fear of being killed hmm. I will not but it's become fashionable in the West to talk about the insiders the secret Jesus believers the East believers inside Islam just to take that example and for these people now we are turning the tables those who who follow this kind of, of translation and so everything becomes you know instead of using a christian word for god it's allah some muslim languages it's not really a muslim language you know what i mean languages spoken by a muslim speak muslim people uh, it will be acceptable to say allah for god others it will cause legal or conscientious problems mm-hmm. it's you know you leave it to the conscience of, and the, the knowledge of the translator but if you go the whole hog at uh, well Hog, there's a classic example. that would offend Muslims because it's uh, or, or Jews because it's pork, right? Yeah. Uh, if if you have this critical lack of confidence, which has affected the postmodern Western world, then you will not only uh, you know you, you'll reverse things to the extent that you're you're not uh, not just failing to put source concepts into the target language, you're even borrowing like language words the other way round, and yeah. not even allowing the source language to speak in the target language, the target language, the recipient language that determines the whole discourse. You haven't translated the message then. I mean, I'm one of those who's come into Bible translation, although I was always called to it. But meanwhile, I've been doing a lot of secular translation and interpreting. You would flunk your exams for either written translation or spoken interpreting Hmm. Uh, in any secular branch, right, whether it's technical, medical, legal, People's livelihoods and people's lives depend on the accuracy of translation and interpreting. You must be faithful to the message you have transmitted, even where people are not depending on it for their eternal salvation. Hmm. If you don't, you'll flunk your exams and you'll be lo- held liable for hundreds of thousands for having messed up someone's business or life in secular translation. It is only yeah. in Bible translation that amateurism, dilettantism, has got gained the upper hmm. hand now. Right, so people people fiddle around with Bible translation and think oh, it's nice. It's so refreshing I'll put in a, a new terminology in the Bible a lot of you know, the The Bible the, um, the, 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 the new Bible translations particularly supposedly to written for Jews or Muslims They're really showing us something psychological about the white Christian or nominal Christian translators involved
0: Yeah white guilt probably um, yeah. You know, like, so here's an interesting thing I see in the, in the Islamic world, right? So Arabic, so I have Arabic Christian friends, um, Iraqis, Palestinians, and it seems to me they don't have an issue using a law, mm. um, especially the Palestinians don't have an issue with that. And let's, let's let people know if they don't, there's a rich Christian heritage, very old one amongst Palestinian Christians, very, very old one. And um, because, you know, usually like I've come across, uh, you know, at least American Christians who just like think, uh, you know, Muslims, you know, I've had people say about me, like, are there Muslims around where you are? I'm like, you really don't know where Armenia is and what Armenia is. That's what that tells me. Um, But and then I see the difference in, in Persian Christians. Now, Arabic is a foreign language, right? To Farsi. The Persian Christians have a very hard time using Allah because that's a Muslim connotation. That's an Arabic Islamic connotation where they prefer to use the word Khoda, right? Which means Lord. Um, And and, and it's very interesting. Like Arabic Christian and uh, Persian Christians disagree on using Allah. And I think some of that probably has to do with the connotations attached to this word into their own language. It's it's kind of interesting. and, And those are, I mean... Again, I, I kind of want to move into this ethics of translation because I would see, uh, do you keep it there? I mean, what are your ethical uh, responsibilities in respecting saying, hey, you, you know, if, if you as a people, this has been a dominant kind of uh, worldview on you, it's been forced on you, it's it's raped and pillaged your culture and all that stuff. Do we want to keep that word? Do, has it been normalized? Has it not? Is it still have that Islamic connotation, for example, in the Persian context? Or do you already have another word in your language that is, you know, very close to this? And like you were saying, we can redeem it. I think about the Armenian. So Ostvat is God. And then I prefer uh, and I like uh, Ararich, uh, which means creator, right? I mean, it's the first kind of introduction we get to God in the Bible, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And Ararich literally means like doer, creator. I mean, it's literally translated. It's like the doer of things, I, I guess. Um, I don't know if that's accurate, but um and and those were already within the armenian language they they had a concept of like creator and and all these things and so um do well answer the ethics one maybe I'll, I'll come back to this other question i'm
1: thinking about i mean this this could fill a lifetime arthur but i mean if you want to reduce things to basics the key question with ethics is the people involved the who hmm. Right, I mean, uh, all, ethics, all questions are answered by asking the right questions. And we have these six question words, Rudyard Kipling in a famous poem called them the six honest serving men who taught me all I knew. Right, and um, the, the, the question words. Uh, the key one uh, I think in importance with Bible translation or any kind of translation is the who. Right, so whom am I translating for, who am I, who commissioned me to translate this Bible translation? These are often not thought of very much. You know, a lot of people have this lazy, unexamined view of the Bible uh, or of any scripture, hmm. uh, any holy book, where they say um, this is God, you know, speaking from on high, thou shalt and thou shalt not. That is not the majority of the content of the Bible, obviously. Right? It's, it's God reasoning with man. And people don't like that in the lazy postmodern West, which is affecting other parts. of the world. I mean, I know it's even affecting countries like Armenia now. People have this attitude of, oh, if God wanted me to do this and stop doing that, he should have said it more clearly. You know, an, an attitude they'd never take to their parents or their teachers. Right. And that that uh, attitude needs to be examined and cast aside. God is actually speaking quite complicated thoughts and he jolly well expects you to keep up because yeah. you would if you could make money out of what he was saying. Or if you could improve your marriage by what he was saying, you'd take note then, wouldn't you? Right. And if you take that sort of sober view of things, then you realize that people have got very multifaceted motives in Bible translation. Right? So ethics is a massive, massive issue because it's got philosophy, it's got linguistics in it, it's got all kinds of epistemological roots. But the, the core of it, you will not go wrong if you keep asking yourself who. Who, right, And that is even anterior and superior to the question of why, why am I doing this Bible translation? But that will help, too. If you pick up a Bible and people say, please examine this, evaluate it. And you say, why was this Bible translation made? Some people will be stumped. Well, well, to spread the word of God, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, some people will certainly in countries like the Netherlands, where they're a bit more honest, you know, they're, they're very bad at dissembling. You can ask them there, uh, pick up some modern Bible translation, say, why was this Bible translation made? And they will sometimes in an unguarded moment say, yeah, well, we were a bit bored or, or, or oh, we felt it would be nice to do. Well, thank <laughs> you very much. You've just, you know, you just uh, saved me the bother of taking this Bible translation seriously. Sure. Seriously, but this, this, you have to look at these first principles questions all the time in ethics. People's motives are incredibly wide-ranging and often impure.
0: Yeah, so it's, yeah? it's very interesting because I think about the message which is a paraphrase. Uh, but we get on to discussing this, yeah. yeah. So, so I don't like the message. Uh, that's my personal opinion. I definitely wouldn't preach out of it. Um, but the who and the why definitely gives gives us a context to understand, you know, what, what what this was for, right? It's a it's a guy making this for his kid. I don't think the intention was ever for a global audience in the sense of people using this as their devotional reading or teaching out of it or something like that. And it's become that, and it, I mean, it bugs me as someone who tends to lean towards the side of let's have the most literal as possible uh, to the best of our abilities. And um, but again, I, I want to have grace for Christian brothers and sisters who who had a specific reason, historically time-stamped, for doing what it is that they did. I mean, uh, apart from I don't know, you know, they had nothing better to do, um, which I think they probably did. They just didn't notice
1: it. That, that's um, a key thing there arthur i mean I, I first came across the message in 1997 or 98 when i was an undergraduate and i was visiting a friend uh in his room at the university and i saw this on the coffee table and i said what's this and he could see i was disapproving or or, or questioning of it and i mean this was an undergraduate at cambridge right he's supposed to be like top two percent intelligent or something hmm. and out of you know, embarrassment or whatever, he, he, what came out of his mouth was, well, we're not all intelligent, you know, we can't all read the, the real Bible. But this argument, sorry to say, is only made by well-educated, uh, in British terms we would say upper middle-class people, right? And, and you're, you're being infected with this now in Armenia as well, at a slower rate than other countries, obviously, because of your great history, but uh, people will pretend to, be, to need a new Bible translation, one that's refreshing and different, because they're too bored Uh, or too Mm. immature to take the the real one seriously, that would be work, and that would have claims on their life. So without trying to impugn the brother in question who said this, because that was just like a knee-jerk reaction, I then looked at it, and I found, just as you said, uh, who translated it, consistently said, will you please not call this a Bible translation? This is a paraphrase. It's for my children, and then my undergraduate students found it a bit useful. I would still have my quibbles with it, big ones. Uh, But he did not want it to turn into what it was, which is you go around, go to churches all around the English speaking world and people would say, and in this morning's reading, we'll be using the message Bible version. Hmm. No, he didn't call it a Bible version. Now, I thought about it a bit more because I was fairly confident you'd ask me what was going on. And I'm actually putting together like a philosophy of Bible translation for my students at the moment. And in terms of layers, what's gone wrong here? Let's take an engineering view of it. Um, I mentioned layers before in terms of language Text translation and you can't do one till you've addressed the underlying layers. There's also layers with regard to education. And the, the, the ancients knew this, the in the East and in the Roman Empire. They had this three layers. You know, you learn the grammar of your native language, then you learn the logic, and finally you're able to do rhetoric, which is the art of persuasion in sermons mm. and evangelism. Right, and the, the Western model called this the trifecta that's been revived among American Christian homeschoolers, for example. Yes. OK, if we take that view, Peterson does not make grammatical mistakes, nor does he make rhetorical. He's a gifted ret- uh, orator. He's a poet. But it was his haste to make the words beautiful and cogent and persuasive that induced him to uh, to skip the middle layer of the cake. Yeah. He didn't put any filling in there. There's no logic or in grammatical terms, no syntax he deliberately breaks the rules of how one part of the sentence relates to the other and deliberately chops up the flow of the argument so that what you have is good english in the micro and the macro level right the uh, the morphological and the discourse level to use grammatical terms the middle layer you know the the, the golden thread of the argument is deliberately not there deliberately hmm. uh, and this is this is a good not I, I would i I would not what counsel anyone to read the message, but he had good intentions at least. There are people with much worse intentions and have been for a long time in the West in Bible translation, but they were a bit more cautious than him and so they didn't get detected. But most of the fiddling with the text and the translation of the Bible for a long time has been due to this kind of dilettantism. I would like to make a name for myself, is the attitude behind it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's. Uh... I've had, uh, so English as a second language. I, me- I moved to the United States when I was 11 years old and uh, n- knew the alphabet and a couple of words, <laughs> uh, very simple words like dog and cat and all that stuff. And so when I became a Christian at the ed- age of 18, I'd never read the Bible in Armenian or in English, so I was not used to the language of the Bible because it reads a certain way. And they, uh, you know, I was like, "What should I buy?" And they told me to buy NIV Study Bible. And I did. And it was great. One of the things I realized is that at a certain point, I became, um, it wasn't enough. Let's put it that way. Like it was good for whatever. It was good for my English because my English wasn't great. I, I, I was a poor student in um, throughout school. Like, so I didn't read much in, uh, in, in junior high school and high school and but when i started reading the bible i started reading a bunch of other stuff i'd like to say that when god redeemed me he didn't just redeem my soul he redeemed my mind as well um and and so i started reading a lot so my reading uh you know got much better and i said well the niv was good for whatever the first three four years of my christianity and i moved on and i jumped around a couple of different translations i started reading the new king james version and then um, I started reading the NASB when I was in Bible college um, it, because it was just the primary text we were using in our studies. Then it became my devotional stuff. And then I kind of, you know, settled. I, I also use the Holman Bible, like I've, I've now called the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, so I, I jumped through these these three translations. One of the things I have realized is, is that Christians are, I don't want to say intentionally, I, I, so it's unintentional from church leadership where they let people stay at a very immature level in in their language. So if it's English, then uh, they never push the people, hey, you can develop your English more so you can read a more robust version of the Bible. It's like if if your English is really bad and, you know, your reading level is at like a seventh grade level or something like that, okay, use a certain kind of version. But, you know, in five years, you shouldn't be there. I heard, no. uh, um, uh, let me say this story because I, I think it, it helps as an illustration. John uh, John Mark Reynolds, who's a, uh, uh, for those who know him, apologist, you know. And so he said that his grandfather had an eighth grade education. And he said that his grandfather would have the King James Bible and a dictionary next to it. Mm. And he would sit there and he would read the Bible in King James. And those words he didn't understand, he would open the dictionary and learn what the word was because that was so important to him and he was able to develop his his language skills so well so he would understand the word of god and he shared a story about him like coding large portions of shakespeare and he said you know we have people who are um and this is shameful to to, to us but we have people who have phd's who aren't able to do any sort of that stuff because they haven't put in the seriousness and the church doesn't encourage them in that way in saying hey you can develop your language skills so that you are able to read a more robust uh, version of the bible uh, so that that's kind of a
1: now after you've hit the nail on the head here um, if we want to reduce that to a single word we have the phenomenon of infantilization hmm. the church in large measure has been infantilizing churchgoers with regards to its expectations of how much of the bible they can understand now how do we compress this? Because it's a massive, massive. There's, there's hundreds of books on this. I have dozens of books on it just myself. Right. Uh, I might write one someday. Who knows? Let's try to get right down to brass tacks here. What are the motives? Just like we were discussing in the last segment, motives. Right. The motives for, event, for infantilizing. There's two spheres I can see here. There's certain kind is a minister who I'm sorry to say in many cases it was not called in, a, in the classic way that I would understand and simply wishes to have his own personality writ large and call it, he wants to sanctify that by calling it, yeah, God's using me to reach the kids who don't read,
0: hmm.
1: right? So that the kids are being used as an excuse. And sorry to say, but let's let's use blunt language here, right? The, who has who misused here? Whose name is taken in vain? The kids, the undereducated, the underclass, the guys coming out of prison, the immigrants, uh, the intellectually subpar, these are all used as excuses. All those categories of people would like to do what your classic, no, this is real American pioneer stuff, the, the, the guy with an eighth grade education in his shack with a Bible and dictionary and, and before emigration to America, that the English were like this as well, by the way, the Puritan era. You know, there were two books in the house, and there weren't even dictionaries in the 17th century, yeah. just a Bible and your brain, right? These guys actually, whose name is being taken in vain, are trying their best to improve themselves educationally, and they know that the Bible contains the knowledge they need and to take the Bible seriously. So there's there's a certain kind of, I'm sorry to use thumbnail sketch here, but a certain kind of intellectually insincere middle-class layabout type hmm. who gets into the ministry often as a second or third attempt in life, who, who likes chattiness for that purpose. And he tickles the ears of people who are very well-educated and have every resource and time and money to study the Bible but just don't feel like
0: oh, it. Yeah.
1: Then let's go beyond that. Who outside the church wants to infantilize people? Well, the Bible is the cornerstone of knowledge. I hardly need to tell an Armenian this, let alone an Armenian apologist. If your people has the word of God, your people is insurmountable. How else have the Armenians managed to survive 1700 years as the only Christians buffered in that region? Uh, Because they know the truth. And they know that the Bible contains the truth for them in their own mistaken way. The Muslims, the, the good, sincere Muslims have this view as well, you know, that they think that God has given them this this knowledge in the Quran and that will, you know, they'll fight tooth and nail for it. OK, so if you are an enemy into including an infiltrant into a country, you know, like a, uh, a guy running a corporation who would like people to to be as stupid as possible to so the they, they work for his corporation and buy his stuff. Hmm. I'm using very shorthand language here. What do you do You, you via your tax exempt foundation and your influence on governments uh, as a lobbyist, as a captain of industry? And this happened in America and Britain, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. You yeah. then go to government and say the schools are producing kids that are too intelligent because they're reading their King James and it's giving them a massive brain. Uh, then this, this really happened. Right. I, I, John Taylor Gatto is one author you mm-hmm. can look at yes. to find out what, what's going on here. So please, can we start dumbing down the, 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 the school and particularly can we attack the Bible? It happened, right? So, I mean, my father's doing some research about this at the moment. Reading age um, of the of the King James Version, for example, what, what age are people expected to be able to read the Bible at if they're educationally average? That age has been artificially cranked up to the point where now it's no longer supposedly an eight-year-old who can read it, but a 17-year-old. Hmm. This is deliberate. Everything is massaged. The, the sales figures, the reading ages, there's so much dissimulation going on in the publishing industry Uh, We can go in many directions here, but, you know, in a one hour interview or whatever, we just need to keep it to basics. Motive. Motives. Read the Bible itself and what it says about people's motives. People's motives are spectacularly complex and impure and difficult to fathom. And why should that not apply when you get onto the sacred calling of Bible translation? It should actually be magnified, you would expect, when you get onto Bible translation.
0: Yeah. Um, With the time we have left, that's, I think, about like 10, 15 minutes, um, what do you do and and uh, i mean we can suppose what you do but the difficulty kind of emotionally and stuff um where your theology maybe be at at conflict with a certain kind of text biblical text where you're like oh man if i translate it the way it's written people might you know read it and believe in a theology that uh, i don't agree with you know this kind of goes with this um this myth aspect, how do you balance something like this? And I suppose one of the ways is that having multiple folks looking at the same thing and the translation and and kind of bringing yeah. the balance, that that would be a way. But internally, as a translator, and, and also I know because you've done some work with uh, within the political realm and the simultaneous translations and stuff like that, because uh, I remember you speaking about this at the conference we were at where you spoke about, like, you politically disagree with what this man is saying or what this woman is saying, like, it, but, you know having a uh, having a sincere and a good heart and respecting the value of the individual and, or the text um, and actually doing that. So explain kind of what goes on in your mind and in your heart.
1: Well, when you're a secular translator or interpreter, then the way that you are trained to deal with this is to have two personas, to split your mind down the middle and hmm. say, there's me providing the service and there's the person whose mouthpiece I am. And it's very actorish, very performance like, actually, particularly in simultaneous spoken interpreting. If someone takes the floor and says, Comrade, it's time to liquidate the underclass, right? You have to be able to say that with a straight face. But the only way you can do it in some international meeting is by saying, Okay, I'm an actor here. It's like I'm a voiceover artist. it's it's horrendous. A lot of people dissolve in tears in the interpreting booth for that very reason. Actually, everyone gets offended deeply by, and shaken by something they have to interpret. But, well, thank God, with my background, and particularly the intelligence background, I learned to keep a poker face about this. You know, not let it get to me. But it does. That's secular, okay, including a lot of Christians who work in that field. The moment you're involved in Christian translation interpreting, and above all Bible translation, you you have something else. On your mind which is you know the law is going to hold me to account for how, how i rendered this so how do we deal with that dissent within a team which does happen you know a lot of bible translations including by the really conservative good translate bible translation organizations do fall apart or start creaking at the the hinge anyway over questions like this you know because people have different views of what they they're doing well you have to get down to the bottom layer first to to, to bottom out the problem and usually like so much in church history it's not even theology as such it's not the systematic theology the doctrine of god or salvation that divides people because they usually have all signed up to the same basis of faith before they begin mm. it's the unexamined stuff and particularly ecclesiology what's the church who constitutes the church that will affect the terminology you use re- with regard to the sacraments for example or the extent of christ's call of sinners right these are the really uh, you know, uh, the, the, the terms and the areas over which Bible translators will really duke it out. And mm-hmm. you have to, if you cannot agree on uh, things within a team, um, then you have to say, well, the source language will prevail. That's one technique. And the other is that you place comments, annotations, as they used to be called, they have other names, marginal notes, footnotes. And in two minutes time, I'll just show you how that's done, actually, uh, because I we'll get to this. Here is, for example, here's how the Jews do things. There's a Torah. okay, just the first five books of Moses. And I'm not suggesting we should copy this, but to show you the history of it. They still produce text that is that big. If you look at how big it is Hmm. compared with my finger. And they will put their commentary, their rabbinic commentaries around the edge because they feel they have a duty to say, okay, don't misunderstand what's being meant here. And a translator, if you think of any good translation, like a a Penguin Classics or an Oxford World Classics edition, even these days, they have footnotes, even if it's just a political treatise or an economic argument. So why have we lost the habit of doing this? Well, a lot has to do with the publishing history of the West. So here's why this wasn't a problem in the early modern era. Here is an heirloom Bible that's coming to my family from my wife's side, Dutch. Most Dutch Reformed families had these in the 18th century. Mm. This is as compact as you can get with a whole Bible and still put all the marginal comments in, which Mm. precisely address questions like this. How am I to understand this verse? Okay. So the trouble is, this was the extent of technology then. You couldn't get paper any thinner than that. Paper was scarce and expensive. A, A family could just about afford one of these. Then the 19th century comes along and we get this, reform- this radical uh, revolution in uh, affordability. And all of a sudden, people produce New Testaments with metric psalters that are that big, pocket, or in Cromwell's in England in their boot, even, while, while fighting a battle. Parts of the Bible. Okay, That's good in its way. But when people got used to this format, they started taking things of this size to church with no footnotes hmm. and hard to retype. And they never regained the habit of putting the footnotes in. Very recently, that has become possible because we now have very thin India, uh, India ink, they call it, don't they, and uh, and the special grade of paper. So you can, here's a Dutch example again, you can get the whole Bible at a very cheap price uh, with the comments that will, you know, will allow translators to say, well, uh, please understand it's in meaning somewhere between here and there. You never put that in the text. Don't become the exegete yourself. But you can get away with doing it in the margin that will you know, resolve the conscientious issues for the translator and also assist the reader. And he will get used to the idea. Ah, this isn't a bedtime reading. This isn't a novel I just pick up and, you know, read a bit and put down. Like mm-hmm. you said earlier, the Bible has its own way of speaking. That's regardless of which language it's in. The Bible has its own way of speaking. And it, by putting footnotes in, you're already inculcating into the reader the understanding that this is to be read reverentially. Yeah. So yeah, well, there are other techniques which are underused. For example, 19th century, again, the gold standard of many things, helps to the study of the Bible, which also has a very small pocket edition size. Here's all the stuff you need, like the concordance, the footnotes, separate from the text if you want, so that when you go travelling, you just have this size. Hmm. It can all be done. And you know, look at formats that are underused. Spiral bound A4 perfect you can lie it flat on your desk you could, don't have to fit the whole bible into a single volume for your home edition i'm just throwing that out there you know or finally here's a, a woeful attempt in terms of layout to this is a very uh, recent attempt by translators to say well here's our translation and we're going back to the old reformation habit of putting the comments around the edge but you can see how heavy and unwieldy it is, and it's so scrunched up text, Hmm. because they're stuck in this view of, which we had since the 19th century of, yeah, we can produce cheap books, we can cram it all in a volume, so why shouldn't we do it? Well, there are very good reasons, didactic reasons why we shouldn't. So part of the answer, Arthur, is just the layout. Allow yourself as a translator to produce the study aids, whether you put them in the bottom of the page, at the back, or in a separate volume. I'd suggest separate volume or around the pages is is more user-friendly. And that will resolve the bulk of these issues. But if people zoom in and get tunnel vision and think the text as read on the page must contain all the nuances, well, you can't do that. You can't, a legal translator, I do a lot of legal work, would never do that. He'd always use a footnote. Hmm. So in a nutshell, use at least the same range of tools that a serious secular translator would use. A lot of Bible societies don't even think that hard about that, They're they're set in their ways. Uh, it needs to be simple for the stupid people who are going to read it is the underlying assumption for many of these people.
0: Yeah, you know, one uh, just you got me thinking back, I'm I'm so happy (laughs) uh, considering that my first ever Bible was a NIV study Bible, uh, because Mm. I mean, I had no idea what I was reading. I mean, it was given to me and it was like, okay, this is the Word of God, I got to read it. And um, I would come across a lot of passages that i had no idea how to interpret the you know background and the culture and stuff and these little notes on the bottom were very helpful i mean i, I wouldn't skip out on uh, on these notes I, I would read them so it gave me it helped me think you know biblically um in yeah. what i mean by that is in within the context of the bible and within, within the culture of the bible um and i still i mean i read uh, depending on where i am and stuff but for my devotions i read on my ipad and um and i have a commentary <laughs> side by side i mean i i because there's such value like i read stuff and it's like i've been reading old testament stuff and like first second samuel and it's like these things are, i mean i said wait is that should that should that be read like that you know and then i'll jump into a commentary and then you know they'll explain it you
1: can even be hyperlinked these days yes you know, and bible it's so easy or others who have the biblical languages if they're not quite sure of the grammar of a hebrew word they can click on the word and get that's a right. pop-up that passes the word this is the grammar and this is the meaning yeah
0: and, and uh, there's so much things? there's so much um that we have especially electronically and so much free stuff that there is i, I mean i use a software uh i use logos bible software and um that that's just brilliant um but uh we really need to step up our game not not i mean the translation work is i kind of view it as like we're not honoring the individuals who put in the effort and the time to translate this where um we just try to cheapen what it's like for an individual who's just become a christian uh who's not used to these things to say we're going to help you out here you know this is the way you actually should read the bible and even if you can't read Uh, your language skills aren't as developed or something like that let's let's come up with a plan let's see you kind of graduate and 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 uh you know have a certain kind of understanding and memory where you're able to to deal with these things so um it it is something that the church and pastors uh church leaders should definitely take seriously i want you know uh, we gotta end this but um I I want to have you back on and talk about, like, the philosophy of language and and translations. I mean, that's, like, way beyond me. Uh, Before we end, uh, Yaakov has a question here. He says, you mentioned translations for Messianic Jews. Will you explain what's going on?
1: Very gladly. And uh, the best book on this is by a recently retired Reformed Baptist pastor who has moved from Israel to Washington State at the end of his career. His name is Baruch Maoz, B-A-R-U-C-H, and the surname is M-A-O-Z, Baruch Maoz. And his book on this is called Judaism is Not Jewish. He is the only example I know of a conservative Protestant Israeli Jew who has become a Christian, who preaches and regards himself not as a Messianic Jew, but as a Christian who is Jewish and Israeli.
0: Hmm. And
1: he's done commentaries and translations into modern Hebrew. And he goes into that, uh, in that book, into some detail about what is the problem with the Messianic Jewish movement and why are Goyim, so uh, uh, Gentile Christians, particularly in the English-speaking world, going by preference to Jewish root translations or ones that were supposedly written for Messianic Jews, but tend to end up being written read, read sorry by um uh, Gentile Christians, it's because of the allure of everything that's Jewish. You know, you see it with the Jewish music uh, worship movement in the church as well. It's it, fine if it's done well, but it's a, it, often it's a bastardization, a pinning of uh, uh, of people's dissatisfaction onto something else. In philosophical terms, an othering process mm. is going on, right? So, oh, these, these Jews like they know what they've they, they've got their act together. They've got more solemnity than than my church. So, you know, uh, before long. Armenian heritage Christians in America are going to probably be doing the same. They're going to be like making everything pseudo Armenian and, and doing church rites or using language in ways that Armenians themselves never did in the homeland. That is what's going on. And the Jews are particularly vulnerable to this because they're their yeah. unique heritage. That uh, people who have come, become deracinated, estranged from their roots as uh, Protestant Anglo-Saxon Christians and who are no longer proud and grateful to God for that heritage, you know, they they you know uh, they, they cling on to the, the, the supposed Jewish legacy. And so because of that, the Messianic Jewish movement of sincere Jews who've come to Christ and paid a horrible cost in many cases, they're being told, oh no, you shouldn't read the King James or, or whatever serious Bible translations being read and recommended. No, you should read a special New Testament written for Messianic Jews in which mm-hmm. Paul is Sha'ul, and uh, and there's not really much of a, a break between judaism and christianity you know that this kills souls this attitude and you know similar things are going on with the insider movement in islam
0: wow now that that is man that might be like another <laughs> so I, I think alex is going to be back on uh multiple times uh, because every single one of these things actually could take you know take us an hour an hour and a half to just kind of scratch the surface um well alex thinks I appreciate it. Again, uh, um, I want to say that if you guys want to get in contact with Alex, if you're on Parlor, follow him. Um, if you want to have questions, you can personally send me messages and then I'll relay that to Alex and um, get you your answers and, you know, uh, kind of interaction if, if that's difficult. But so. Uh, I want to thank you, Alex. I appreciate it. I appreciate the work you're doing, man. Uh, and and people like you. I mean, you're you're an example of uh, a, a group of folks, a very large group of folks who do this work. And most of the time, we don't know who they are because if we even look at the names in our Bibles uh, of the individuals who've put in the work and effort and sacrifice to create these, uh, then we have appreciation. Most of the time, the work you 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 guys do is underappreciated. So. For me and I guess uh, some of the people who are watching, we, we appreciate the work you're doing. Um, let me just say a couple of final words as, as uh, we get uh, kind of going here. I want to thank you guys for uh, continuing uh, to watch this and support our channel. Um, again, like and subscribe. Share this video out. Uh, I think it will be beneficial to Christians uh, all over uh, at least the English-speaking world. So with that said, I want to say God bless you guys. Take care.